and 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 women overwhelmingly said that they were discouraged by their family, by their friends, by faculty members. So not only we are not encouraged, but we are also discouraged. Welcome to the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. For the month of April, we are interviewing the leading ladies in rhinoplasty, thanks to an amazing sponsorship from Pentax Loops. So if you want to get a cool discount on the Pentax Loops, you better listen to the end of this message, because right at the end of the podcast, we're going to give you the link, and then you'll be able to get hold of, hopefully, a good price on some of the best loops that are on the market. So today, I have somebody who is a great inspiration, not, to, not just to ladies around the world, but to men around the world as well. She's a, a mother, a wife, a prolific author, a member of a board member of the evidence-based research and rhinoplasty group, um, a PhD, a facial plastic surgeon, Philia uh, Lacorcus. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a huge honor to be with you, Cameron. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, which I want to ask you before you ask me what uh, what continent I represent, because I know that my the uh, my colleagues that you have also invited come from different continents. Sure. Well, it's difficult. I mean, you were born in Australia. You did your right. ENT. I'm an Aussie. I bet you didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. But you also a Greek, and you did facial plastics in the UK. You ended up now in the US. Now you live in Brussels. Yeah. So I think you represent the ladies. That's what I'd like you to represent. Thank you. It's a massive honor. Yeah. Awesome. So, Philia, let's kick this thing off. Okay. So you are in this rhinoplasty world. How did you become such a successful rhinoplasty surgeon? What started this little dream of yours off? Yeah, I certainly did not dream of becoming a rhinoplasty surgeon when I uh, qualified medicine. Um, it was, I was very much convinced that surgery is the thing for me. Uh, and you know that you take this decision uh, during the last couple of years in medical school. Proud that I have qualified medicine at the University of Patras, with Patras being the third largest city in Greece after Athens and Thessaloniki. Uh, and I started uh, surgical training in Athens. I did a couple of years of general surgery and a bit of ENT in a military hospital in Athens. But I took very early on and very consciously the decision to leave Greece and to go to England uh, with the desire to become an above average ENT surgeon. I was utterly convinced that, uh, you know, the, the surgical training in England was so good. And in fact, it's it's very well known that, that England has a very solid surgical training. Uh, but yeah, this was this what motivated me to leave my country early on, actually. And, and, and then... Yeah, I mean, one, one job led to the other. Uh, I, I Initially, I was thinking more of otology, I must admit, but finally the, the nose won me over. I was very lucky to do uh, a big number of rhinoplasties during my training uh, and extremely honored to be awarded with the uh, European Academy of Facial Plastics, uh, Plastic Surgery uh, Fellowship at some point that gave me the opportunity to go even further, to go abroad, to, to visit US, to speak 
spent uh, three months in California, uh, Sacramento, uh, UC Davis with uh, Jonathan Sykes at the time. And I met Travis, of course, uh, back in those days. Uh, and I did six months in London and also six months in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. So that was all, all the, you know, the formal training, uh, which was, of course, followed by the exam. The, the American board exam. Okay, well, yeah, I also said that it's a very difficult exam. Um, how it, within? Okay, so within qualified as a facial plastic surgeon, how much other facial plastic surgery are you doing apart from rhinoplasty? Well, I'm doing autoplasties, I'm doing uh, skin cancer and reconstruction, uh, some trauma, I'm doing scar revisions. Uh, and uh, I mean, the, the facial plastic surgery has an enormous field. Uh, the, there is a big part of my practice is also the, the non-surgical uh, uh, rejuvenation acts. So that's also uh, part of the, of the curriculum. Uh, and uh, yeah, I enjoy it all. Okay, so now I'm gonna, I want to steer us away a little bit from, we're going to come back to the rhinoplasty side of things. What do you do when you're not doing rhinoplasty? So I love yoga. I practice um, for five years now. Uh, so I'm relatively new into this world. Uh, I love hot yoga and that's hard to practice now because of the uh, COVID situation and the pandemic. But, uh, you know, imagine um, practicing yoga in a heated room uh, in a temperature between 37 and 40 Celsius. So you, you stretch and you exercise muscles that you've forgotten they existed and it's it's actually quite therapeutic uh, there, there is a meditation part in it it's uh yeah it's 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 really really wonderful i can't describe it it's it's a wonderful feeling when when you have it done uh it's it's, it's challenging uh but hey we're anoplastic surgeons we like the challenge that's for sure so this challenge tell me how did you juggle or how do you juggle being a mom wife and rhinoplasty surgeon at the same time. Yeah, with difficulty and with loads of guilt. Um, so, I mean, I think that's that's a very known feeling to women that uh, have uh, uh, loads of responsibility at work and uh, spend uh, long days at work. Um, so I think I'm used to it now. My family is also used to it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think what's important is for all women out there that are considering uh, a, a career in surgery in general, because I don't think there is a big difference between surgical specialties, um, is to remember that this is feasible. Uh, because one of the difficulties that women have is the lack of role models and the lack of mentorship. There aren't many people around to uh, kind of, yeah, not take you from the hand, but say to you, you know, look at you in the eye and, and say to you, you can do it. It's 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 difficult, but it's not impossible. Um, and I think if if I can if I can. Pass a message on today would be brilliant if I can pass on that message to, to mm. younger colleagues. Mm. So, Philia, what have been some of the struggles in, in being a woman in rhinoplasty for you? Well, 
I think it's the same for all. We are the minority and it's a male-dominated profession. Of course, it's not the only profession that's like that. <laughs> a lot of other professions are like that. It's a competitive profession and it's, it's tough for all. It's tough for men and it's tough for women. But women remain the minority. If you look at studies, women are occupy less than a quarter in all surgical specialties. Um, again, the lack of role model, the lack of mentorship has do the, it does actually play a role. There was a study done a couple of years ago at Harvard where they uh, gave a questionnaire to medical students uh, asking them they, their intentions to do to enter surgical specialties. Uh, and also what they found uh, was the advice from their environment and they and, and, and women overwhelmingly said that they were discouraged by their family, by their friends, by faculty members. So not only we are not encouraged, but we are also discouraged. And, uh, and, that, and I think that a lot of that is probably a little bit gender biased. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's interesting for me is that instead of like your reaction to this is, I'm just going to go and do a PhD. I'm like... I don't think yeah. there's another woman on this planet who's a facial plastic surgeon and has done a PhD. I just think that's such a great answer. So talk to me yeah. about how you did that. Yeah, the, the truth is that, again, I was extremely lucky. You know, I've landed in Belgium for family reasons. Uh, uh, it's eight years now ago. And, you know, I was, I was given this opportunity and I thought, this is, this is great. In fact, in the beginning, I... I wasn't really convinced that this was um, going to, I wasn't convinced that I was going to like it that much. I thought it's an opportunity. I'm sure it'll bring me something. And then I ended up loving it. I, I ended up, and I do strongly believe that a woman can balance an academic surgical career and a family life. It's, it's feasible. Um, and hey what what an incredible journey that was first of all levin has this amazing you know team of incredible minds and individuals and and i must admit now because we're talking about women i have to mention valerie pikovet a colleague of mine who actually laid the work for for me to take over and continue and and i owe a lot to valerie and and i thank her from the bottom of my heart of my heart she's a great colleague she's actually practicing she's also a rhinoplasty surgeon she's practicing in germany these days uh, but we have loads of other incredible uh, women uh, in Leuven. There is Laura van Herven, who's more into the rhinology uh, part. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the, the one and only Peter Hellings, who's uh, the in incredible uh, visionary and individual that has, uh, you know, guided us all uh, into this uh, academic path. Um, again, as you know, I was I was uh, I managed to com to complete that last year. Um, but it, it was, you know, I would advise anybody who's passionate about what they do to do a PhD. Honestly, I, I uh, significantly uh, think uh, that this is uh, a, an incredible opportunity that has a, a lot of positive aspects. And, and tell us a little bit more about your PhD. 
for the for the listeners who don't know about what your topic was and i mean i was there listening to your defense we had to do it through zoom but share us about what it was and what what have you gotten out of it yeah so uh, essentially it was this was to keep it very simple was a little bit how 3d technology can shape up the rhinoplasty world and uh, can change uh, and actually help us become better rhinoplasty surgeons that's that's in a nutshell that's what it was um and a lot of the studies i was involved with uh, had to do with the preoperative consultation so we looked into computer simulation as you know and how that benefits patients and surgeons uh, we looked into how 3d uh, simulation can have an carries an added value uh, in comparison to, t to 2D. Uh, then we looked into 3D printing, which was also a very unique study, and it all started in Versailles. I, I went to this meeting in uh, 2016, I believe it was. It was the, the first international meeting, and oh my God, what a meeting that was. And I, I got so much inspiration out of that meeting and uh, in fact it was there when I you know apart from rubbing shoulders with all the glitterati of rhinoplasty I, I had this incredible opportunity to meet um, a representative of the company that was uh, manufacturing these 3D printing models and I thought that's it I really need to to work on that and uh, and make it part part of this PhD and after that, I must admit, it was a long road because one of the things it's difficult uh, is the collaboration between industry and academia. And I wish things are a little bit easier on that front because uh, in rhinoplasty, in facial plastic surgery, this is the driving force for developments. It's not work in the laboratory so much, but it's more work that has to do with the industry. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it happened. <laughs> I mean, I'm incredibly proud. Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. And you know, funny enough, thinking about that same Versailles meeting, that is where everything started for us in South Africa, because it was the first time I met Stuart Galdenais and Peter Scott. And then from there introduced me to Rod Rorick, who then invited me to get to Dallas, who then said to me, I've got to start a society in South Africa. And that's what's happened. And now we're sitting here doing a podcast. It's it's great, eh? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's a great memories, and what what one event can trigger, you know, it's it's really incredible uh, if you can take it on and really uh, drive it forward. How how far you can go with an idea? Absolutely. So, Philia, we started our podcast series with uh, three guys from the evidence-based research and rhinoplasty group. Now, you're also a board member there. Uh, that's right. Tell me a little bit about more what it's been like. I love being on this group. I'm learning so much on the Telegram group and the discussions, etc. It's it's really good and it's it's like um a non egotistical group, which is great. These people aren't trying to put their best results up, they're just trying to teach people. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I learn so much. I uh, like you. I mean, we all learn. That's the amazing thing. We we kind of exchange ideas and uh, uh, and as you know, articles and so on. And we we really try to move this incredible field that we're all passionate about forward. And this is what makes it so unique. 
Uh, and in fact, you know, I remember with Sam Most when you interviewed him, who was saying we're just trying to move really FPS out of this black sheep of otolaryngology kind of phase. And it's true. We, if we have evidence, we we are all very proud, and we know that we can deliver better care to our patients. It's an incredible group. I agree with you. Uh, I, I I enjoy every minute in it. I learn so much. Um, and I think it's now very evident that only with evidence we can move forward because the rest, otherwise the rest, the, the, the only statement we can, we can deliver is in my hands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Filio, now listen, I can't keep you away from being a teacher. So now's your chance to give us some, for all the listeners all around the world, um, you can share your screen and I'm going to remind you, not everyone can necessarily watch on YouTube, but it is going out on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all over the place. So when you are talking and showing us this, um, your PowerPoints, please just be mindful of speaking it so that somebody who can't necessarily see it will be able to understand what you're saying. Okay, let's try this. And... Um Okay, so great. So you know that this was the cover of my PhD. I put it as a first slide because this was really for me um, the uh, first uh, thing that uh, introduced me into this world of 3D technology in rhinoplasty. And you know, technology has so much uh, revolutionized our lives because of the pandemic and we all function so much differently because of that so technology is actually a very good thing and 3d technology in rhinoplasty with a number of of uh of publications uh i've shown that has uh, an added value um this is the incredible meeting in Versailles, and this is me with my uh, 3D printing models uh, that I got that day. And this was an incredible study that we did, was the last leg of the PhD, we can say. Uh, but again, very privileged to be part of the Science and Research Committee of the Rhinoplasty Society of Europe that gave me the opportunity to meet um, Martin Haug, Professor Martin Haug, a plastic surgeon in uh, Basel University in Switzerland. Um, and again, uh, you know, I'm part of the outcomes research group uh, from the European Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery. And um, of course, the evidence-based rhinoplasty and research group that we have already discussed. So with Martin, I had the opportunity to uh, discuss at length uh, the um, option, uh, the possibility of doing a study involving 3D tissue engineering cartilage for rhinoplasty patient. Uh, and these, uh, this incredible idea has actually been already demonstrated that it works for uh, skin cancer uh, patients uh, in, uh, in the nose and reconstructions. So as you see here, this was a study that uh, Martin Aug and even Martin, the, the head of the 3D tissue engineering lab, in Basel have already uh, done and published at the Lancet. So the big question now is whether we can actually do that for rhinoplasty patients. 
And I'm sure you and all of us in rhinoplasty uh, have met individuals that they have significant functional problems, but because of their age, their comorbidities, they are not very good candidates to harvest rib and do all sorts of uh, structural grafting and correct their problems. So I think this was the question, the big question that we want to put forward and into test and uh, we're looking into developing a phase one trial uh, nose to nose with uh, 3D tissue engineering. And I do have an intraoperative picture to share with you. This is a gentleman that I operated um, not so long ago. Um, he was obese. He had ischemic cardiac disease. He couldn't be under general anesthetic for a long time. He, uh, you know, couldn't uh, afford to have uh, rib harvesting uh, with the post-op, considering the postoperative pain and the potential complications. Uh, and he had uh, an incredible uh, ALR collapse and incompetence at the level of the external nasal valve. So I uh, used PDS foil uh, and I have tailored that to create, uh, to imitate ALR strut grafting. And I tried to uh, correct his problem and he was delighted with the results. So the big question is whether we can actually take a little piece of his septum, create in the lab 3D tissue engineered cartilage and use it to structurally correct uh, the uh, functional problems that some of, of our patients may have and, uh, you know, presenting surgical challenge to correct it in a standard, uh, in a standard way. Uh, and that's the end of my talk. That's great. So, Philia, the, the, this is very interesting because there's been quite a few talks about, or, or there's research about trying to actually construct cartilage. And it's, yeah. not that, it's not that easy. Do you think we're going to be able to get to the point in the future where we can, where a patient will be able to actually, not a, they can almost choose their nose and we can tailor make a nose for them by designing cartilage for that specific patient. Uh, is your question involving aesthetic concerns? Yes, both aesthetic and functional. Yeah, because I think that's far more complicated. I was referring more to the idea of being able to create uh, grafting material for individuals that it's very difficult to get into uh, harvest uh, because of their profile. Sometimes it's their age. Uh, don't forget that the rib gets calcified. Um, sometimes is as, as the individual I just, the patient I just showed, uh, the, the comorbidities that will not allow you a very lengthy procedure. But aesthetics, it's, it's a different matter. Uh, in a way, this, if we manage to prove that, I think it, it will, it will be, Ex exceptionally uh, advantageous, not only for rhinoplasty, but for all head and neck surgery, because if you can provide 3D tissue uh, engineer cartilage for tympanoplasties, <laughs> 
or for any other matter in the head and neck, then th that on its own have a, a, a huge benefit for uh, mankind. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I think rhinoplasty, let's not forget there is a significant functional component. For the aesthetic component, equally, it, it might have a place. Uh, you, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice question. I haven't thought of it. Um, if we perhaps, um, yeah, we need to involve the 3D uh, bioprinters and uh, get, get uh, uh, precise, uh, measured uh, pieces of grafts that will, will help us provide a nose. But let's let's not forget, and that and that was actually I was I was honored enough to be asked to, to write a, a commentary on a publication recently in Aesthetic Surgery Journal, and it was it was a group of surgeons uh, that um, wrote about. In fact, they put an enormous amount of effort to produce uh, a 3D. Um, uh, software, uh, which is also free, it's available uh, for people to use in order to, to, to simulate noses. Uh, and the, I think the idea behind all this is that it, it's great, but there are limitations and we should always stick to the basic rule of under-promise and over-deliver. I think this is something that in rhinoplasty uh, goes hand in glove and we, we shouldn't ever uh, be practicing without without this in mind. Mm, no, I agree. Okay, so Philia, I don't, I don't want to box you in, but I'll, there's this part I want to chat to you about that you've spoken many times and I think you're one of the, the kind of world authorities on photography in rhinoplasty and there's I want to ask you about a few things about it. There's morphing beforehand. In other words, so, and I often get questions on the different groups as to what is the best camera system to use, firstly. Secondly, the kind of software to use. And then possibly a third talk to, or part of the talk is to ask you about intraoperative photographs. So maybe to kick it off from my side, I've tried both having a digital SLR with flashes and then these photographs are taken and they're used on the computer and there's different software programs you can use. On the other hand, I've been using the Vectra system which automatically takes photos and makes them 3D. So they're quite different, the two. I'd love to yeah. hear your comments about this. Yeah, I, I use both, you know, and I use both because in the meetings and between surgeons, we still communicate when we present a lot with 2D photography and we kind of, kind of we have kind of learned to, to use them. Uh, 3D has certain advantages and I have seen that not only with the studies, not only that the patients love it and they uh they they see better they they enjoy the experience more they understand better they learn better about themselves and their anatomy but has certain benefits for for the surgeon that doesn't mean that everybody is obliged to get a 3d system still a little bit pricey i am convinced that this will will go down in time because that's what happens with technology that moves so fast, the price will go down. Um, but I think it's very important to remember that visual cues are there uh, not to 
promote ourselves. Visual cues are there to help us communicate better. We need to build rapport, and we are not all of us good communicators. We might be good surgeons, but communication is not something we are taught. And we need all of us to have good sixth sense, and we're not all good at it. In fact, we, we learn by experience, which means by making mistakes. But And that's why rhinoplasty is such a sophisticated procedure. We need analysis. And how can you do analysis? You know, sometimes patients come and they need, you know, they need X, Y, Z on the face. It's difficult. Are you going to stare at them for how long? So I take pictures immediately. The minute they come in, I take pictures immediately. And then we comment on their pictures. And I say, look, look at your facial asymmetry. Really? I have facial asymmetry? Nobody told me. Well, can I show you? And then even the models that they they kind of stroke a lot of, you know, uh, criticism as, are you going to give the models? And shall we give the models? And uh, do we not give the models? Yeah, the models are hugely uh, educational tools. I actually use my my own model because I had the, the opportunity to produce one. And I say, look, look, this is what it means to have a superative break. They need to understand. And uh, do you like this? And how would you, we, we need to communicate. We need to be aligned. So it's all about communication, whether you do it in 2D or 3D. I don't think it matters terribly. Nobody is obliged to use 3D tools. If you have it, it's certainly uh, a luxury uh, nowadays. Uh, there is an added value. We have proven that. But I think it's important that you get photography as part of your consult the minute the patient walks in, not before the operation. And certainly not by getting your mobile out and photographing them, because that's you do them a disservice to yourself as well. Um, my results... Uh, improved the minute my photography improved. Well, this, these things go in parallel. So I'll, I know it sounds a little bit, you know, an, as an exaggerated statement, but it it helps you identify things that you wouldn't be able to identify. So you become a better surgeon out of good photo, a better surgeon out of good photography. There is no doubt. I'm and sorry, I kind no, of took right, a long answer here and not sure whether I answered all the points. No, no, that's good. The second thing is, uh, what I find is if I've got a, a resident or a fellow who wants to come and watch or learn something with rhinoplasty, the first thing I do is I give them the camera and I say to them, take the photographs during the operation. Because Absolutely. a couple of years ago, Miguel said to me, he said to me in his best Portuguese, he said, Cameron, if you don't take photographs, you didn't do the operation. And I was like, wow. And it's very true because it's for various reasons. I mean, we, we, we need to have records. We can see what we actually did. We can see what our mistakes were, etc. But I think that intraoperative photographs is so important. Absolutely. And you learn so much when you go back and see them and watch them and say, oh, really? I did that? And sometimes, let's face it, you, you, you do a long operation and you don't exactly forget. But when you write things down, if you only write things down, if you write the protocol, well, if you go back a year later, this, these words will say nothing to you or very little. But if you have photographs and even better if you have videos of it 
when you immediately understand what you did. These visual cues interoperatively play, play, play the same role. And that's why I think how you record your, if you remember, we had this incredible webinar from the EFPS where Dean Toriomi and Baris Chakir gave a talk about um, uh, video recording uh, and how you actually keep a protocol, an operation protocol. And in Rhinoplasty, it's so important you have, again, visual cues for that, incredibly, for your own uh, improvement, uh, for medical legal reasons, for if you want to go back and do something uh, else. Incredibly, incredibly mm. important. So give us some tips, someone who's listening. What kind of camera do they need to get and flash to be able to take photographs interoperatively? Actually, uh, currently I'm using, um, I have a, a Sony uh, HD camera that I, again, I must admit, I took the, I took the expensive option and kind of called. I have a professional photographer that comes with me when I need and he takes videos and then he he edits and i say you know from that uh, minute to that minute i i want a short video or from that minute to that minute that's an expensive solution and it's not you know it's not very surgeon friendly uh, i recently purchased a system uh, that i have a camera on my uh, headlight um, and that allows me to take interoperative pictures even when I'm doing uh, more hidden work like septal work. And that, that works very well. But I must admit that I haven't found the best solution uh, to say to your audience, this is, this is what you should do. It, it's a little bit of a trial and error phase for me. I want to try and have a camera um, uh, that is uh, with my satellite light um, because I think that will give me more options. So when you work on the tip, you get nice or on the dorsum, on the open approach, but the, the camera on the head, it also gives you more, uh, uh, more options to take photographs when this camera that's on the on, you know on the satellite uh, is not able to, to capture what you're doing so there there's no only one solution I think and it's a difficult one I, I must admit once I get the setup right I'll make a new presentation <laughs> and <laughs> share true. it with everybody but it's not it's not easy so you know what I've been doing now is so my photographer might take 100 or 200 photographs during the operation and then what we do is for every single patient at my one week follow-up, I take them through a PowerPoint slideshow of about 20 photographs of the steps of the operation. 99 out of 100 patients absolutely love it because they actually get to see what we did in the operation. And then we'd print it out as a PDF and email it to them if they want it. I don't know if you ever do that. Yes, I have. Oh, I have this. I have a similar experience, of course, because I consent them for that. I have made my own consent form, where I explain, and they need to either say that they authorize me or they don't authorize me to actually video the surgery. So I, I have that in the records. Otherwise, I don't. I don't do much. And okay, I think to take a picture is is legitimate. But then again, to to film 
parts of the operation, I do get a consent form, so I'm, I'm, I'm all fine. Um, and then, uh, because I discussed that in advance, I, you know, I have basically, yeah, can I have a video? Can I see this? Can I, I said, are you sure you want to see your eyes open? Yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. <laughs> and they love it, as you said. I mean, not everybody's like that. The younger they are, I must admit, you know, more towards millennia, <laughs> the more keen they are for the videos. <laughs> generation thing. Celia, I, I mean, okay, so let's, let's try and wrap a few things up here. Um, what's the favorite thing for you about rhinoplasty? Oof, I love it all. I, uh, it's, uh, as I said, I, li I like the challenge. Uh, I, I, I like the sophistication of it. I like that it's a, it's a new puzzle every time. No nose is like the previous one. Uh, yeah, and and I and I and I do like uh, pushing the envelope all the time. So yeah, <laughs> I love it all intraoperatively, but also in the consultation because it's, you know, you you try to figure out whether this, you you love the nose, but do you really want to operate the individual? So it's like. It's like a little bit of a detective work. Is is this individual an okay individual to operate? So that that's also a challenge. And you know, postoperatively, if they have issues, you you need to kind of be very sympathetic to them. And and that's why I believe women are very good in rhinoplasty and also in leadership positions. Because look at women, they are, what are they? They are wives, they are sisters, they're mothers, that they embrace their families with empathy, with care, with commitment, with courage, with uh, understanding, with respect. And what are these attributes? Are attributes are qualities of leadership. So I'm sure women make, you know, inspirational and wonderful leaders. Uh, but all they need to know is that they, they, they just need to keep going and uh, despite the defeats to never be defeated. For sure. Philia, that's beautiful, man. I was thinking how can I get another question to ask you but you've just nailed it man <laughs> sure thank you very much yeah it's a pleasure and thank you for your great mind and, and all the things you are doing to get you know to get to get us even more forward in rhinoplasty and all this incredible communication and learning we we had uh, since about a year ago now it just shows us that if you, you know, if there is a will, there is a way. So thank you, Cameron, for all you've done. No, well, and for those people who've actually listened all the way to the end of the podcast and heard those inspirational words, now I can tell you what to do to get a good deal on these very cool new Pentax loops. So the cool thing about the Pentax loops is that they give you a wide field of view, but also they save your neck. And, and Daniel Simon loves talking about looking after your neck and rhinoplasty. So they actually allow you to, instead of bending your neck down, you can look forward and through them. So you need to go to www.pentaxloops.com. So that is P-E-N-T-A-X-L-O-U-P-E-S.com. Send them an email. Tell them that you listen to the Rhinoplasty podcast with Filio Lukakis and wait and see what deal you can get from them. So guys, that brings us to the end of this show. Filio, thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you for this month of the leading ladies in rhinoplasty. And yeah, I just want to wish you the best day. I really, I mean, I don't know what more to say to you. Like you, 
board member of evidence-based rhinoplasty, PhD, mom. It's fantastic. Eh? And, and I know that this message is for the ladies, but there are so many men out there that are also inspired what you do. So thank you for that. And I genuinely, you know, it's a privilege to have you as a colleague and a friend. Thank you, Cameron. The pleasure is mine.